Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. The Bible is radically God-centered. It begins with a straightforward recognition of his existence before all things as creator. In the beginning, God. And it ends with the promise of God's eternal presence, either as judge for those who have disobeyed, who have rejected his gospel, or as redeemer and father for those who do embrace the obedience of faith in Jesus as Savior. That radical perspective on the centrality of God in all of life is hard for us to embrace as much as we ought. Our sin makes us inward focused. We're tempted to look to ourselves and wonder where is it that we are found in the Bible, first and foremost. And our sin makes us prone to idolatry as well. We're tempted to look for other parts of creation in order to find our ultimate meaning and our, to, to fill our deepest needs as creatures, whether that's by trying to gain the approval and acceptance of other people or through the hell-bent pursuit of our misguided lusts. In our foolishness, we can think that we can solve our own insecurities by just focusing more on ourselves. In vain, we chase those shifting shadows of the earth in the pursuit of meaning of our lives. But the testimony of Scripture cuts through like a knife over and over again from beginning to the end. If we're consumed with the pursuit of our own glory, we'll miss out on the greater good that is God's glory. God is himself the eternal, unceasing source of life and of joy and of peace. He was and is before all things. He has no beginning. He has no end. And it's hard for us to wrap our minds around that concept. I was talking with my daughter about it last Sunday after the service. But let's just try for a minute this morning. Staring at the eternity of God helps us recognize that his level of existence and being are above ours in every way. The eternity of God means that he knows all things and all things are present to him from eternity. He sees all things at once, as it were. And that's why we can say, as the scripture does this morning, say that he alone is wise because he alone is eternal. He doesn't grow in his knowledge over time. There's nothing new for him to learn. In his wisdom, God has seen fit to create us, not because he needed us, but as a free act of his own will in order that we might see and savor his glory. All of human history, all of human history is about the sequential unfolding of God's glory to humanity and all of creation. From his eternal wisdom 
the execution of his plan of redemption and salvation will result in the greatest revelation of his glorious character. It's not an overstatement to say that the enjoyment of God and his glory is the very point of our existence. Amazingly, God brings himself glory through us. By seeing and celebrating the free and gracious gospel, we, we attribute glory to God who is not lacking glory. We, we see it and we reflect it. By empowering us to live lives that honor him, we bring glory to God. By gathering us together to, to savor and see God's glory together in worship, we, we glorify God. By giving us gifts freely in order for us to use those gifts for the good of others and for his glory brings him glory. By, by patiently weaning us off of our own vanity and pride and drawing us to himself to taste and see that the Lord is good. The Bible is radically God-centered, and our lives are meant to be radically God-centered as well. The book of Romans strikes that chord over and over again. We are meant to glorify God by the obedience of faith, believing his gospel, and then submitting to his authority for our lives. Friends, there is no more meaningful mission to be wrapped up in than joining in the eternal glorification of God the Father through the Son, Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. The big idea for this final sermon in our series of the book of Romans is this. Glorify our wise, eternal God who establishes and preserves his church through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Glorify our wise, eternal God who establishes and preserves his church through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we'll see this in three movements as we're just looking at these three verses first. God strengthens his church through Christ-centered preaching. Second, the secret mystery he writes about is God's redemptive work in Christ. We'll look at that in verses 25 to 26. And then lastly, the eternal God is due never-ending glory. Let's pray as we begin. Father, would you help us in, in these next moments to put all of our effort into focusing on what you would have us to hear from your word by your spirit this morning. We ask that you would be glorified even in this moment through our believing your gospel, standing in your gospel, and encouraging one another to remain faithful to your gospel. Father, we pray that you would accomplish that right now in this moment for your glory and our good. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we officially dig in, I just want to make a note of something that kind of came up last week a little bit. Ryan was going to mention this last week as he was preaching through this, and, and I actually advised him not to, but it's come up a couple times in conversations over the past couple weeks. You might be wondering what happened to verse 24. So if you have an ESV, you'll note that verse 24 is not there. If you have a King James Bible, you will see that verse 24 says this, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. 
But in our, in our ESV, that verse does not exist. There's a footnote there. Most other modern translations also don't include this verse. Just briefly, uh, we don't have Paul's original letter that Phoebe delivered to Rome. What we have is many, many copies of that original letter. And in a few places, those copies have variances between each other. They're a little bit different in some places. So they vary from one another. Many of our copies of Romans include that sentence following what we would call verse 23. But other manuscripts, copies of Romans, put that sentence at the end of verse 27. And it's essentially what we've already found in verse 20 of chapter 16. Similar thing. So it seems best not to include it into the body of text based on the textual variance and the evidence that we have at hand through the manuscripts. But we're not ashamed of that. The Bible translators are not scared to let people know that. That's why there's an asterisk there that you'll see if you have an ESV. You'll probably see a little footnote that explains what I've said. Some Greek manuscripts exclude that verse. So most modern translations have left it out, but that's potentially confusing. So Rather than renumbering 25, 26, and 27, they've just said we're just going to leave 24 out so that we can maintain consistency with those last three verses with the King James Bible. If that doesn't make sense to you, you can ask me questions in the lobby afterwards. You can grab a copy of Scribes and Scripture from the bookstall. It'll help you walk through that as well. Okay, verse 25.1, God strengthens his church through Christ-centered preaching. Verse 25, we've already just saying this morning, I love it, we stand in the gospel. Verse 25 says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. The one who is able, of course, is speaking of God. God is the one who is able to strengthen these Roman Christians. This is who Paul is writing to. It's a plural you there. So it's the Christians and the churches to whom Paul is writing. That means that God intends to accomplish by use of the gospel, the good news, and the preaching of Jesus Christ, the establishment, the strengthening of his church. Uh, Paul begins the, the book of Romans in chapter 1 by stating this same aspiration that he has for these Roman Christians. He intends, he hopes to be able to visit them. I'd love to be able to see you guys in order to impart some spiritual gift to you that you might be strengthened in the gospel. And now he's finishing up this letter in that same way. To strengthen means to establish, uh, to, to affirm, to confirm, to stand strong, to be unmoved, to be deeply rooted. And God is able to do that for his people through the gospel. And the way that he does that is through the gospel itself, but also notice from this verse, it's the recounting of that gospel through preaching. The gospel itself and the preaching of said gospel. Paul himself had hoped to join them and to strengthen them in the gospel, but he's ending his letter now knowing that it's going to be sent to them by Phoebe with a recognition that even in Paul's absence, this letter is bringing the good news with it and so that itself should be a means of strengthening the church, that the gospel arrives in the church and the church is built up in and through it. Now this, of course, reminds us of what Jesus himself says about the building up of the church. Matthew 16, the apostle Peter declares that Jesus Christ is the son of the living God. And that confession 
helps, uh, is, is not revealed to him by flesh and blood, Jesus says. Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And that, that rock that Jesus intends to build his church upon is both Peter's confession of the true identity of Christ as the Messiah and others who are like Peter who hold to that same confession of the identity of Christ. So the church, in this metaphor, is like a building. And this building is resting upon the confession of the gospel for its foundation. And then it is constructed, the building is built up by these living stones who are people who affirm this gospel. Now we might ask, in what way is the, the church strengthened by the gospel, by the preaching of the gospel? We can reflect back on some of the issues that we've covered over the last two years, have read through the last 16 chapters, uh, and we can kind of fit them into three categories. Commentators note that all of these trials seem to fit under three distinct categories. Uh, the trials that we need strength for are f- they're physical trials, there are relational trials, and there are spiritual or theological trials as well. We're strengthened for physical trials by hearing the gospel and its implications. We've seen this in Romans. In specific, he says that nothing shall separate us from the love of Christ. Not tribulation, not distress, not persecution or famine, nor nakedness, danger or sword. In all these things, we are conquerors through him who loved us. So even the greatest physical danger cannot separate us from what is our greatest need, which is to see and savor the glory of God. We're strengthened for relational trials by hearing the gospel and hearing its implications in specific that we are to, for example, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So Christ's gracious, undeserved acceptance of us is meant to impact the way that we treat one another, graciously relating to one another and welcoming We're strengthened for theological trials as well by hearing the gospel and its implications, in specific what we heard last Sunday, that we are to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them, knowing that, in light of the gospel, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. So it's the division that Satan loves to seek to create has, has a built-in expiration date. It's a part of the, the, the fruit of the gospel, if you will. So the gospel relates to these establishing us through these physical, relational, and even theological trials by hearing and repeating, meditating on the gospel. We're individually and corporately strengthened by God's gospel and hearing Christ-centered preaching, Christ-centered preaching. So uh, Christ-centered preaching is not just for our conversion. It's not merely evangelistic. It is evangelical. Uh, We need all of the gospel for all of life. It is for our strengthening, not just conversion, but being established in the faith to, to, to sustain ourselves in the faith through every kind of trial by the word of God preached. And this includes the, the Old Testament and the New, 
all understood in the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ-centered preaching relates on every bit of scripture being seen through the lens of the redeeming work of Christ. And so if you're a guest here this morning, perhaps your mother asked you to come, happy to have you here this morning. And if this is one of the only sermons that you hear this year, here's, here's, here's a tip. If you go to another church at some point and you hear a sermon that only has a collection of historical facts to try to inform you about things, or if you hear a sermon that only tells you what steps you need to follow in order to do better, or if you hear a sermon that tells you how God can meet all of your psychological felt needs, but the sermon never offers you the forgiveness in the name of Jesus Christ, and the sermon never drives you to worship on God's own terms, then it's not the sort of preaching that the New Testament would actually commend. Gospel preaching is a gift of God given to us for our spiritual benefit, and I recognize my weakness even here right now in that reality. But the spiritual benefit, the joy and peace that we need is found in the never-ending well of Jesus Christ's righteousness. The benefit of preaching doesn't come from a preacher who's going to yell at you to try to just do better, try harder. You don't ultimately need an inspiring TED Talk about how you need to believe in yourself more. Joy and peace in believing come from believing God's word about his son. It's ultimately the gospel that brings us joy and peace. Romans 15, 13, Paul has just told us this. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. That's where joy and peace and hope and found. So how are you supposed to believe in him of whom you have not heard? A gospel-centered sermon that misses Jesus misses the point of preaching. To be strengthened and to establish ourselves in the gospel with the result that we don't abandon the faith, with the result that we do not forsake Christ. Your view of the centrality of preaching in your life might not rise to that level, and I appreciate that. It's a legitimate question to ask. What difference can actively engaging with sermons actually make in my life? Well, I want to suggest that it has a cumulative effect. Submitting to the rhythm of sitting under the word preached and hearing the gospel rehearsed has a cumulative effect in your life. The meals that you eat strengthen you. You probably don't remember every meal that you ate, but had you not eaten enough meals, you wouldn't be here this morning. And in a similar way, you might not remember every sermon you've heard, but they build up over time, Lord willing, sometimes imperceptibly, to strengthen you, to establish you in the faith. So it is important that the regular diet of our preaching is focused upon God's redemptive work in Christ. That is, after all, the secret mystery that Paul is talking about in these verses. Second, just notice this, the secret mystery is God's redemptive work in Christ. Verse 25 through 26, I'll just repeat those again. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations 
according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. There are two words that stood out to me, at least, when I was reading through this the first time, mystery and secret. This sort of makes you lean in a little bit, like what God has a secret mystery? What's he holding? What could it be? But then you, you read what surrounds it, and it becomes a little more clear what Paul is speaking about here by a secret mystery. We note that that mystery was disclosed through the prophetic writings, which means the Old Testament, and it is being now revealed through the good news and preaching of Jesus Christ. And so now it's been made known to all nations to bring about the obedience of faith. And so it seems clear that the mystery here Paul is writing about is the way that God would draw all people to himself, including the nations, through the person and work of Jesus Christ. In his eternal wisdom, that mystery was known only by God before the foundation of the earth. The Father would send the Son in history to redeem a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation from their sin for his glory. But that plan would be progressively revealed bit by bit in history throughout time. Notice that Paul says that the secret mystery was formally disclosed through the prophetic writings. Notice that it was formally disclosed through, disclosed through the prophetic writings. Again, prophetic writings speaking here about the Old Testament. Uh, the threads of the gospel are all the way through, stitched through the entirety of the Old Testament. From beginning to end, Paul has labored hard in the Old Testament throughout this book of Romans to establish that very fact. In fact, in Romans 3, probably the clearest example of this, Paul says that the law and the prophets bore witness to the gospel. The prophetic writings disclose, reveal, uh, make manifest the fact that the saving righteousness of God would come through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Now, not just those from Israel, which is what it might have appeared like, but actually anyone from any nation. The gospel wasn't fully understood in the Old Testament, and it clearly wasn't fully experienced in history yet, but it was there, disclosed and yet hidden. Theologian B.B. Warfield uses an illustration about this that I found really helpful. Imagine waking up in a vacation rental in the middle of the night, and you just want to get up and get a drink of water. You're going to try to find the kitchen, but you're not really familiar with the furniture or the layout, and so you're trying to feel your way through the room, and so you go find a wall, and you're stumbling through, and you find the light switch. You flip the light switch, and all of a sudden, now you can see all of the furniture, and you can see the path. Now you know how to get into the kitchen to get that drink of water. The furniture was there while the lights were off. You just couldn't fully see it. What already existed in the dark was brought to light. So in that Old Testament, we see shadows of who Jesus is, that he would suffer for the sins of his people, that all the nations would be drawn into God's people, particularly through the prophet Isaiah. Paul is laboring through the prophet Isaiah to bring this to our attention. But it wasn't until in history, the point at which the Holy Spirit was sent down at Pentecost that the light switch went on for the church. It wasn't until the Holy Spirit was sent. That, that's the movement in history that we're seeing here as it relates to the secret mystery. It was disclosed in the Old Testament 
and yet it is presently revealed through the preaching of the gospel. B, it is presently revealed through the preaching of the gospel. And again, so now we're at Pentecost. Christ has died, buried, resurrected, ascended, promises the Holy Spirit will come. The Father and the Son now send the Holy Spirit and essentially flip on the light in the Old Testament so that it can be seen as testifying to Jesus Christ. And so these apostles now start to look back at the Old Testament, realizing the whole time that this was pointing to Jesus. They needed the Holy Spirit to open their minds, to illuminate their minds, to recognize who Jesus is, and to exercise faith in him as the Messiah. And many people from different nations came to the obedience of faith, believed the gospel, and came to faith in Jesus Christ. And so then the apostles are sent out now with that gospel message to the nations, which was disclosed in the Old Testament and then revealed after Christ's resurrection and ascension by the Holy Spirit and, friends, now is preserved for us in the writings of the New Testament. So you can imagine that there's a detective who's been working on a really complex case for months, trying to put all the pieces together in this confusing case, And then there's a crucial witness who comes forward and provides the missing bit of information. The identity and the motive is is revealed. And so now all the other clues make sense. And so in this moment, the detective experiences a rush of clarity, a a rush of understanding as this mystery now has been solved by that, that crucial witness. And if we can press that analogy... The Apostle Paul was like the detective who knew the Old Testament really well. He was trained as a Pharisee. He was devoted to Scripture. And yet the crucial witness is the Holy Spirit who steps forward with the missing bit of information. Paul was chosen to play a significant role in spreading the good news of Jesus by declaring God's authority and summoning all who would hear this gospel to believe by the power of that Holy Spirit. By command of the eternal God, Paul was sent out as a messenger to make the good news known to all nations. You might have your own personal mystery that you're engaged in this morning. Maybe you have the mystery of a burdened conscience that you don't know what to do with. It's possible that you have a mystery of some sense of shame or guilt that you just don't know quite what to do with. The revelation that Paul received and shared, that same gospel is the same gospel that we all need, each individually, right here this morning, in this moment. A sense of guilt or shame is satiated through the recognition of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need what Paul preached, the obedience of faith. We need to obey the call of the gospel. We need to lay down our rebellion against God and his good authority in our lives and trust the salvation that he's provided for us in Jesus. So we obey Christ and his gospel by believing, but we also obey God morally as we're submitting to God's authority from the heart inwardly out of devotion. So wherever it is that the gospel is proclaimed and preached, there is a summons that comes with it, that you would engage in the obedience of faith, that you would believe and lay down your life and take up your cross and follow Christ because that's where life is found. 
God has redeemed us for obedience so that we can present our lives as living sacrifices for the glory of God. This is one of the main themes of the book of Romans. Uh, even that we know about Paul's passionate zeal for his kinsmen according to the flesh as he talks about Romans 9. Paul is zealous that the gospel will go out to the nations. But his primary passion is not evangelism. That might sound shocking to you. But the central focus for Paul is the glory of God. Evangelism, spreading the gospel, is simply flowing out of the passion that he wants other people to see and savor that glory of God. Third, the eternal God is due never-ending glory. Verse 27, to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. The mystery, the secret, uh, that which was disclosed, the revelation of the gospel the, the very ordering of all of human history is orchestrated by God in his eternal counsel in order that he might receive honor and thanksgiving and praise. And so the doxology that's ending Paul's letter here is a written proclamation of God's honor in recognition of his glory. It's what a doxology is. It's a glory saying, I've seen God's glory and I'm saying that I love God's glory. God is, by his very nature, objectively beautiful in all of his perfections. And that's what we mean when we say glory, that he's beautiful, objectively unending beauty and satiating in his nature. He has made us for his glory. That is why we're created, to know, uh, to know him and for us to know him by demonstrating his glorious perfections through his creation. We can see it in creation but also through his saving acts. We see God's glory through his saving acts as we saw it in the book of Exodus. We could see it at the cross. We can see it in the testimonies of one another's lives. Most clearly, God's glory is seen through the redemption of sinners through the cross of Jesus Christ. The Bible is radically God-centered. Only God is worthy of being at the center of everything. Whether you know it or not, the most basic question that all of us need to leave here asking this morning is this, how can I bring glory to God? It is the most basic question. We ask all kinds of other questions about life. We focus on ourselves, which often leads us down paths of disappointment, paths of despair. But making God's glory known to the ends of the earth is the most meaningful way to spend your life. And that can look very different if you're a parent making God's glory known in your home, in your workplace, making God's glory known there. Or you could prayerfully consider if you're being propelled, called into missions. And the missions team is glad to have recently begun supporting Eric and Leah uh, in their efforts to share the gospel with international students. Thanks to the generosity of the saints here at Trinity. Uh, one of our members, Mircha, is actually planning on going on a short-term trip uh, to Ethiopia again to help train pastors there and how to understand Christ-centered Old Testament teaching and preaching. Thank you again to the generosity of the saints here at Trinity. The gospel is still on the, on the move. The gospel is going out to the nations. His gospel is still spreading, and he is using you and I to make that happen. He uses us to give himself glory. 
all of the questions, all the desires, all the needs that we have find their greatest and their ultimate fulfillment in God's gospel. What do we mean by that, though? It's, it's hard to put flesh on that concept. Uh, one commentator helpfully surveys some of the truths that we learn in God's gospel as it's revealed to us through Romans. You might ask the question, if you have been wronged, do you seek justice or vindication? Well, remember that God is the just judge. Chapter 2, verses 5 through 6. Do you feel the burden of guilt and shame? Well, remember that Jesus has offered himself as a sacrifice, a propitiation to atone for our sins, chapter 3. Do you fear condemnation? And worse, do you suspect that you deserve condemnation? Remember that the judge will declare you righteous through your union by faith with Christ, chapter 3, chapter 8. Do you wonder whether or not you were able to approach God without terror as a judge? By faith, recognize that we have access to God. We have the right to stand in his presence that he has given to us, chapter 5. Do you wonder if God loves you? He loved you while you were weak and sinful. How much more must he like you now as you are in Christ? Chapter 5. Do you feel trapped by sin? Through faith in Christ, you now have been risen to new life. And Jesus has set you free. Chapters 5, 6, and 7. Do you feel unimportant? Do you feel as though you've been excluded? Remember that God is your father, and you have been adopted as his child by faith, the brother of Christ, and now every believer is your brother or sister by faith. Chapter 8. Does life seem futile? Possibly even for good reasons. Recall that the Lord will end the corruption of this age, and he will redeem us, including our bodies. Chapter 8. Do you lament those who still remain separated from God and his gospel? Remember that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, and you are beautiful as you are conveying that message to them. Chapter 10. Do you wonder if there is hope that you might have a meaningful life and existence? Remember that God renews your mind and gives you gifts in order to serve him and to serve mankind. It's chapter 12. Do you hate the deception and division that the devil instigates? Remember that he will soon crush Satan under the feet of his church. Chapter 16. Obviously, friends, we could go on. Stephen mentioned earlier this morning in the announcements, but next Wednesday, the 24th, 6 p.m., We're just going to sit down and get together in the fellowship hall and read through the entirety of the book of Romans from beginning to end. It is helpful to hear books all together in its complete context and its entirety all together at once. You can listen along, you can track along and pick out different aspects of the gospel that stand out to you in this particular reading. So I invite you, it's open to everybody. We're just going to read through the book of Romans and I would encourage you if you come, it takes about an hour. To, to take some notes and figure out what sort of aspects of the gospel stand out to you as being particularly sweet as we're reading through that and meditating on it together on that Wednesday night. And then afterwards, we'll have ice cream and celebrate and discuss what it is that God has revealed to us through his gospel. 
The biggest takeaway for me is just sort of reflecting on uh, the book of Romans and this study really is just to see how radically God-centered all of life is meant to be. I thought I knew it, and I'm sure I still have more to learn. There's really some challenging stuff in the book of Romans. Totally understand. There's some stuff that's just hard to wrap our minds around. Other stuff, it's, it's hard to wrap our hearts around. But if we're content to let God be God, and if we desire to see the joy and peace of believing, and we recognize that all glory belongs to God through Jesus Christ, uh, the book of Romans and his gospel as presented to us through the Apostle Paul is a great treasure, and it's been an honor to work through it with you guys. We'll end this series in the same way that, that Paul does in a, a glory saying. Soli Deo Gloria, glory to God alone. Uh, my prayer is that we've wrapped up this sermon series, that we would indeed grow together in gospel unity for the sake of mission, for the sake of God's glory. Let's pray.